parents were part of the group that came over from First Baptist in Beach Grove to start this church way back in 61, if I remember. I wasn't there. My mom played the piano on that first Sunday, believe it or not, six, 59 years ago. And uh, you, you couldn't see her, but she was playing it this morning. Uh, turn, turn in your Bibles to Second uh, Timothy chapter 4 as we, <laughs> as we continue uh, in uh, this passage, this letter that Paul has written to Timothy. As I was reading through, starting to read through this text a couple weeks ago, uh, I was just doing, the, the first thing you do when you teach or you preach, right, is you just kind of read the text over and over and over to get a feel for what, what it's saying, what is God saying in this text. And so I was doing that, and I was making some, some notes, and, um, and I took a break, and I turned on the TV, and I stumbled across a, uh, a documentary on uh, Olympic athletes. And I've always been a big fan of the Olympics uh, way back to when I was a kid. And so I started watching, and, and it's talking about these athletes, uh, some of which you would recognize their names, uh, who, who were at the, the top of their field, the top of their game, all the way to becoming Olympic champions. And, and I recognized some of the people in there, so I was really interested in what it was about. And then I, I realized it wasn't what I expected it to be. Because these Olympic athletes who had reached the pinnacle of their sport, who had everything they ever dreamed of, they'd given their lives for this goal, their entire lives, and given up everything else to reach this goal. And they, and they, and they had it. They were on top of the mountain. They had everything this world could reward them with. They had fame, they had fortune, they had the love and adoration of a nation, and they were miserable. To the point that many of them were suicidal. It was a documentary about the mental health of elite athletes. And, and listen, I don't pretend to understand the complexities of mental health. But at a glance, that, that just didn't seem to make sense, right? I mean, you reached everything you ever wanted. You're at the top of the mountain. You got everything this world could reward you with, and you're miserable. And, and I turned it off, and I went back to the text, and, the, and it just struck me how different the stark contrast of what I was reading in the words of the Apostle Paul as he came to the end of his life. Look at what he says in verses 6 through 8. He says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I've finished the race, I've kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, but to all, also to all who have loved his appearing. How can the Apostle Paul, who had nothing that the world could offer him, nothing that the world could reward him with, all he got from the world was suffering and persecution and pain 
and, and soon martyrdom. And yet, do you, do, you hear, do you hear the hope in his words? Do you hear the peace in his words? The confidence in his words as he comes to the end of his life? Even the joy in his words. How's that possible? Is, is this to be the normal Christian experience? Or, or is this just reserved for super-Christians like the Apostle Paul? How are we to rightly think about death? Are we to, to look forward to it and welcome it? Are we to fight against it with everything we have? Are we to be afraid of it? The Apostle Paul wasn't afraid of death. He seemed to welcome it. If, I think I've said this before, but if, I only, if, I, if you walked in this morning and I'd never seen you before and I'd never met you or talked to you and I wanted to get to know you and, and I only had five minutes and we sat down and I said, I got five minutes to, and I want to know who you are, kind of what your life view is, what your faith view is, kind of uh, what you, how you see the world, which, what your worldview is. I probably, if I only had five minutes, I wouldn't ask you about your life. I'd ask you about what you think about death. What happens after you die? Are you afraid to die? How do you deal with the death of others in your life? Because if you tell somebody what you think about death, <laughs> you're telling them a lot about how you live your life. Because how you view death will change and affect the way you live your life every single day. And Paul gives us an example here of how to die well. Let's pray together so we can understand this with the Spirit's help this morning. God, we're so grateful for your word that you've not left us to stumble in the dark to figure these things out on our own. You've given us such clear teaching as we find here in Paul's words through your spirit. God, would you help us understand this text? Would you challenge us? Would you encourage us? Would you convict us? Would you change us? Through the power of your spirit, I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. The main point in this text this morning is this. The day is coming when the faithful will be rewarded. Pretty simple statement. Pretty sobering statement. Pretty exciting statement. The understanding the context here in these verses is really, really important because if you look at the context here, Paul, of course, is writing to Timothy and the immediate context in verse 5 is really helpful. He says, as for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry, and then right into verse 6, 4, <laughs> I'm getting ready to leave, Timothy. It's your turn. Timothy, you've got you to be faithful. And so he's challenging Timothy, and he's encouraging Timothy. And it's, it's really important to remember that as we read through this, because it explains why Paul would say some of the things that he says. And there's some questions that are going to come up in this text. 
that understanding the context will make them very clear. So it's really important. So we have three verses here this morning. I gotta tell you, this, this passage is a, is a preacher's dream. Three verses, three different points of emphasis, three different perspectives. It, it really preaches itself. And it's a beautiful passage with these really clear, distinct statements that Paul makes. And I think it will be very encouraging to us this morning, and it will be very convicting. In these three verses, Paul, in the first verse, is looking at his present situation. In the second verse, he's looking at the past, at his life. And in the third verse, he's looking to the future, as to what's coming. And in the first verse, he's looking at his present situation, and, and he sees that his time is coming, and so he sees the coming departure. His death is imminent. He's going to die in prison. He's going to be a martyr. And, and yet I love the, the, the phrases that he uses. Every one of these phrases is very rich in imagery. The first thing he says is, he doesn't say, I'm going to die. Feel sorry for me. He says, I'm, I'm being... I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. He's using distinctive Jewish language here, describing the sacrificial system that the Jews and Timothy would, would well understand. And back in Numbers 28, it describes the, the sacrifices that were to be offered, and there was a burnt offering that would be offered first. And then at the conclusion of the sacrifice, you would have the drink offering would be poured out at the very end. And so Paul is really clear in what he's saying here. He says, I've lived a life of sacrifice already, and now I'm coming to the end of this life of sacrifice, and I'm being poured out as a drink offering. And the picture here is a beautiful one because when it describes this in Numbers 28, it describes the cloud that would come off of the sacrifice. And it would go to heaven, and it was a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And it says the same thing about the drink offering. And Paul is telling to Timothy, I've given my life as a sacrifice. You're going to have to give your life as a sacrifice if you're going to be faithful. But it's, it's worth it. It's a pleasing aroma to the Lord. You will not regret it, Timothy, if you give your life as a sacrifice. And then he's, and he makes this statement, the time of my departure is at hand. It's a very interesting way to describe death. This word departure is, is a very a visual word, and it's used a couple different ways, both of which I think are fitting, but one of them I think fits the context better. The, the first way is it's the word departure describes a soldier who is, is loosing the ropes around the stakes, pulling up the stakes, packing up his tent, and going home because the battle is over. And Paul's already used the imagery of the soldier in this, in this letter, and it's certainly a fitting picture for him. But the second way that it's described, I think, fits the context. When, and I think I have the def definition here. This word means to loosen the rope that binds the boat to land so that it may speed to its destination. You see, isn't that a beautiful picture? Paul's like, ah, I'm standing on the end of the dock. 
I'm ready for the, for the boat to be loosed from the dock because I'm ready to go home. Paul's not standing here cowering in fear even though he knows he's going to die as a martyr in a horrible death. He's like, I'm ready to go. Take me home. Loose me from this world and take me home. You see, Paul wasn't afraid of death. You know why Paul wasn't afraid of death? Remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15? He said the sting of death is, is sin. And, and Paul knew that his sin had already been dealt with at the cross by Jesus Christ. And he also saw the evidence of God's grace and his power and his spirit in his own life dealing with sin on a daily basis. He, he knew that sin had been dealt with. He had nothing to fear from sin. And so death had no sting. Remember, he mocks death. Where is your sting? If sin has been dealt with, you have no reason to fear death. I love this quote on this passage. To the faithful, death does not come as a stern and inexorable tyrant sent to execute the vengeance of heaven, but as the messenger of love and peace commissioned to close a troublesome and mortal life and to put him in possession of one glorious and eternal. Remember, to the Christian, death is no more death, but resurrection to fullness of life. And Paul, Paul held loosely to the things of this world. And so it was easy for him to let go we got to think about this in our own lives, right? What if today was your day of departure? We're not promised tomorrow, right? Do you hold so loosely to the things of this world that it would be easy for you to stay goodbye? Or if you're honest, would you say, you know what? I don't think I'm ready. You know, this, this world's not so bad. And the, and the pleasures of this world and the possessions of this world and the promises of this world have entangled you in this world and it would be hard for you to let go. All that we would be like Paul and have this attitude at the end where we're holding so loosely to the things of this world where it is easy to let go and say, take me home. Paul knew the departure was coming and he had a hope and a confidence. Why did he have a hope and a confidence? Well, because he could look back on his life and see the completed discipleship. Paul was a disciple of Jesus Christ, and he knew when he had come to the end of his life, he could see, he could see the grace of God and the power of God and the Spirit of God in his life, and he knew he had accomplished what God had given him to accomplish. He had completed his discipleship, and that gave him great hope. One of the questions that comes up in this text is, is, is Paul talking about himself too much? Is Paul bragging here on himself? And, and there's, there's a, several answers to that question. The first thing uh, to see in this text is that when we read it in English, 
Uh, the emphasis is on Paul, on, on the eyes. I have fought the good fight, and I have finished the race, and I have kept the faith. In the Greek, it's, it's not that way at all. It actually flips those. In the Greek, it, the emphasis is on the second part. And actually, it's first. It says, the good fight I've fought, the race I've finished, the faith I've kept. Paul comes to the end of his life. He's not giving Timothy his spiritual resume. He's already said he doesn't care what anybody thinks except Jesus. It would do nobody, including Paul, any good to stand up there and brag about his life at the end. That's not what he's doing. Remember, why is he writing the letter to Timothy to encourage him, to challenge him? We get great perspective on this. If you go, I think I have it up here, but if you looked back in the first letter Paul wrote to Timothy at the very beginning, he says this, and this is really instructive. He says, I thank him, Jesus, who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord. It was his work, his power, his grace, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, I was a persecutor, I was an insolent opponent. This is where Paul would go on to say, I was the chief of sinners. Paul is saying to Timothy, find a worse sinner than I was. I killed Christians for a living. Find somebody that was more lost, that was more wretched than me. But Christ, right? But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost sinner, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. You see that? Paul's like, man, Timothy, <laughs> you know who I was. You know who I was. If God can save me, <laughs> if God can do this for me, he will do it for you. And so with that backdrop, he says, look at what Christ has done in my life. Through Christ, I've, I've fought the good fight. And these are rich pictures. This, this fighting the good fight is, is actually language from the games, the, the Greek games that they would have been very familiar with. And uh, it's, 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 not, it's not military imagery, although, again, he's used that in the past. So this is, if you look at the context, he, he's talking all through this about, about the games, an athletic metaphor. And he says, I fought the good fight. This is not a picture. We, when we say fight the good fight, we might think of like a boxing match. Um, but that's, that's not the picture. I mean, think about in a boxing match, you could be five seconds into the fight get, and catch the guy with a lucky punch, and the fight's over after five seconds. That's, that's not a picture of the Christian life. That's not a picture of Paul's life. The fight here that he's talking about is a wrestling match. In a wrestling match, man, you cannot take any time off. You have got to wrestle. You have got to struggle. You have got to fight. You have got to give every ounce of energy from the beginning all the way to the end, or you're going to lose. And that's the picture Paul is painting here. I gave everything I had through the grace of God and the strength of God and the Spirit of God. I gave everything I had. I didn't quit. 
He says, I've fought the good fight. That, that's not Paul saying that he, he, he fought a good fight. The emphasis is on the fight. What, he, what he's saying here is, I've fought and I fought and I fought and I fought and I gave every ounce of energy, and it was a good fight to fight. It was a worthwhile fight to fight. This word is also used um, to describe something that is honorable, something that is right, something that is noble. Timothy, it's going to be a fight, and you're going to have to give every ounce of energy to fight that fight, but it's worth it. It's worth it. It's an honorable fight. It's a noble fight. It's the right fight. People are going to tell you you're foolish. People are going to tell you you're crazy, but it's worth it. If God has done this for me, he will do it for you. And then he says, I finished the race. And this is, this is the language of, of the race course. This is talking about a runner running a race, which is really fitting because if you think about a runner running a race, they have to run on the course. There's a prescribed course that they have to run, and there's a prescribed distance that they have to run. And Paul is saying he's kind of this single-mindedness. I ran the race. I didn't get off course. I didn't stop short. I finished the race, and, and I love the, the um, translation that says, I finished my course. I really think that's, that's an accurate way to say it because there's a personal aspect of this. Paul believed that he had been given a course, and his course was to take the gospel to the Gentiles, and he said, that was my course, and I finished my course. I have a course that God has given me. You have a course that God has given you. Your course probably looks different than mine. It's based on your gifts and your opportunities and your roles, but God has given each of us a course to finish. And Paul is saying, by the grace of God, Timothy, you can finish your course. God did that for me. He'll do it for you. Finish your course. Don't get off track. Don't stop short. Finish. If you've heard me teach or preach for any length of time, you've heard me uh, talk about one of my heroes of the faith, uh, my grandmother. And I thought about her every day as I was preparing for this. If you don't, if you never got to meet my grandmother, I'm sorry. She, um, if you know my mom, uh, you, might, you know my grandma a little bit because her spirit lives on in my mom. And, um, and I, I'm not trying to make a, I, I'm not trying to canonize my grandma here. She would hate it if she knew I was talking about her. That's, that's just the way she was. But, um, but I think it's good to celebrate the grace of God in the, in the lives of, of ordinary people, and that's what she was. She had a tough life. She, 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 when she was 15 years old, if you knew her, this, this will make you smile. She was 15 years old. She married a 26-year-old boxer. For those of you who have, have uh, girls and are dreading the day that they bring home a guy for the first time, it could be worse. <laughs> and, and she wasn't from Tennessee. She was from West Virginia, just in case you were wondering. And... Um, she marries this, this boxer, and, and she didn't know anything about God, anything about Jesus. And when she, in, in 1941, when she was about 21, 20, 20 years old, she goes to church to pray for her brother, who's missing in action in Pearl Harbor. 
And um, the, for the first time in that church service, she hears the gospel and she has changed forever. Uh, I know if I was probably more professional, I wouldn't get emotional up here, but it's my grandma. Give me a break. And, and she begins a life of faithfulness. She, she has three children, and uh, she makes sure that they know the gospel and are in church and understand the gospel. All three of her children come to faith in Jesus. She lives a faithful life year after year after year after year in front of her husband, and 20 years later, her husband comes to Jesus. My grandpa. And he... Later in life, his, his, his rough life catches up with him, and he has all kinds of health problems, and he loses a lung to cancer, and he loses a leg. And um, didn't slow him down at all. And she's just a rock. I know she had her moments, but man, when I saw her, she was just a rock. And uh, after my grandpa died, she, uh, she stayed down in Cloverdale where they lived, and uh, uh, she had to stay there to take care of her neighbors, all of them. That's what she did. And then later in life, it just became too much for her, so she moved back up here to Indianapolis and moved into Crestwood Village down here on the on south side on Madison. And she was still well into her 70s, but she was still very independent and could drive and do things, and her, her neighbors soon found that out and started asking her to do all kinds of things for them and go to the store and the pharmacy and run errands, and, and it was getting to be too much. And, and so people were, were counseling her, you got to be careful. People are taking advantage of you. People are using you. And I asked her about it one time, and she got this real curious look on her face. And she said, people tell me that people are taking advantage of me, people are using me. And she, she kind of tilted her head, and she said, but I want to be used. <laughs> she said, why am I still here if it's not to be used? She, she was going to finish her course. In the last days of her life, when the time of her departure had come, the doctors called us and said, hey, you better come, it's not long. And so you, you, you probably experienced that, right? You, you go and all the entire family crowds into that, um, that hospital room and, and she knows why we're there, right? We're there to say goodbye. And she, um, and we, we, uh, we reminisce and uh, we, we laugh and we cry. And uh, we're saying our goodbyes as we're walking out. And I, and I leaned down to her, because she, she could barely talk to where we could hear. I leaned down to her and I said, Grandma, how can I pray for you tonight? And she can't breathe and she's in pain. And she can't sleep. And I, and I expected her to say, you know, pray for me that I can, that I can sleep and breathe and not in so much pain or, or maybe pray that God will take me. You know what she said? <laughs> I'll never forget it. She said, pray that I'll be faithful to the Lord. Can you imagine? Here's this frail little woman. 
And I'm like, that's a giant to the faith. And as I walked out of that room, so ashamed, so humbled. I said, God, please let me finish like that. God, be gracious to me as you have to her. She finished her course. She was never in the pulpit. I never saw her up in front of a group of people. She was always behind the scenes. Man, she was faithful. She finished her course. God was gracious to her. And if he did it for her, he'll do it for you. He'll do it for me. Timothy, be faithful. Finish your race. Finish your course. It's worth it. And then he says, I've kept the faith. And this is a, this is a phrase that's found its way into our American vernacular, keep the faith, right? And um, when we say it, it's more like kind of don't give up, Right? Uh, don't stop believing. And um, that's, that's not what this means here. The, the key to understanding keep the faith here is it's the look of the word kept here. I've kept the faith. It's the same word that, that God, when it talks about God keeping us in Jesus, it means to guard, it means to protect, it means to treasure, it means to keep safe. And Paul is saying here, I have been entrusted with the faith, the faith of Jesus Christ. I have been entrusted with the gospel, specifically the gospel to the Gentiles, and I've kept it. I didn't lose it. I didn't, I didn't dress it up or, or dumb it down. I didn't dilute it or distort it or change it or add to it or take away from it. I preached Christ and him crucified, period. Which, which by the way, <laughs> was the absolute worst church growth strategy that you could have had in the first century. <clears throat> because preaching Christ and him crucified <clears throat> excuse me, was offensive to everybody. Excuse me. Uh, to the Jews, they thought it was a curse. To the Gentiles, it was offensive. Uh, it was foolishness. How dare you tell me I'm not good enough? But Paul said, I'm going to preach Christ and him crucified. I think Paul would say this. <clears throat> Paul did not let the gospel suffer in his hands. Ironically, Paul did not let the gospel suffer, which meant that Paul suffered instead. I think we can make that statement with confidence. In the life, not just the preacher, but in life of every Christian, either the gospel will suffer or the Christian will suffer. Listen, if, if the gospel does not, if you're not letting the gospel suffer in your life, you will suffer for it. How does the gospel suffer in the life of the Christian? Well, there's, there's 
more overt ways and there's more subtle ways. The most obvious way is that we don't, preach, we don't talk about the gospel at all because we don't want to suffer. <clears throat> right? I don't share the gospel because I don't want to be embarrassed. I don't share the gospel because I don't want to suffer ridicule. I don't share the gospel because I don't want to suffer um, losing a friendship or a relationship. I don't share the gospel because I don't want tension in my, my extended family. I don't, want to, I don't share the gospel because I don't want to suffer in my workplace or my neighborhood or my school. And so the gospel suffers, so I don't. More subtly, the gospel suffers is if, if I never get to the heart of the gospel. It's, it's easier, especially in Midwestern America, to work God into a conversation or the good Lord, or, or maybe put a kind of a benign Bible verse out there once in a while. But man, the gospel suffers if you never get to Jesus. Because once you get to Jesus and you get to Christ and him crucified, then you got to answer the question, why? Why did he come? Why did he have to do that? And then you got to talk about sin. And you got to talk about the holiness of God. And you got to talk about judgment and wrath. And you got to talk about Jesus as the only way to solve that problem. And you got to talk about how not one of us is good enough. That's offensive. You will suffer if you share that on a regular basis. Paul said the gospel didn't suffer. I kept the faith. And it didn't suffer. Are you suffering for the gospel or is the gospel suffering because of you? It's a fair question. It's a sobering question. Paul said, by the grace of God, I kept the faith. Paul believed that he had completed his discipleship, and that gave him great hope and great confidence as he turns to verse, the third verse when he looks to the future, to the crowning day. Paul was motivated by the crowning day. Is it okay to be motivated by rewards? You ever, you ever get a, a, a tinge of hesitation? That, is, that, is that selfish, to be motivated by rewards? Well, if you look at the words of Jesus, uh, the answer is a resounding no, it is not selfish. How many times does Jesus point his disciples and point his listeners and point each and every one of us to the day that is coming when his Father who rewards in secret is going to reward you and any investment in the kingdom is going to be rewarded a hundredfold? C.S. Lewis um, somewhat famously said these words about rewards and being motivated by them. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised to us in the Gospels by Jesus, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires for rewards not too strong, but too weak. He goes on to talk about how we are, we are so content with the rewards of this world that we don't even think about the rewards in the next. He says we're far too easily pleased. I think the reason maybe why we wonder about rewards and if it's okay to be motivated by them is we, have, we don't really understand what is really going to happen on that day. And, and have you ever imagined what that is going to be like? 
Imagine this. Jesus Christ, in all of his glory, as the righteous judge will be standing there. And standing before him is one of the redeemed. One of his children that was born in the image of God and yet born under sin. And so without hope, under condemnation, lost forever if not for Jesus. And, and he stands there and he, looking at the redeemed, can you imagine what that, what joy? Here's, here's, here's the culmination of redemption standing before me. The redemption that Jesus gave everything up for to purchase this one that now stands before him. The redeemed. You, me, you imagine? And not only that, you not only stand there as the redeemed, you stand there as one of the faithful. And not only does he, not only can he stand there and look at you as the redeemed, he, in, in, in I, I, what I believe will be great joy, actually gets to reward you. And as he rewards you, right, I mean, think about what's happening there. Paul is not looking for the reward, the victor's crown here is what, what he's talking about. He's not looking to get the reward and then walk around and say, man, <clears throat> look at what I have done, right? Paul's already said that I didn't do anything. Man, man any glory from that is going to be turned back to Jesus because any reward I receive is just a manifestation of his glory in me. And, and so he's going to get all the glory anyway. I'm not stealing his glory. Him rewarding me is evidence of his grace and his strength and his spirit. And Paul's motivated by that. We should be motivated by that. I remember when I was reading these verses early on, and, and I was just making some, some high-level outline notes, and when I got to verse this, this third verse, I wrote, uh, <clears throat> a crown will be awarded by the judge. And, and then I read it again, and I was like, that is not what that says. I've read that verse a hundred times, but I've never felt the weight of what it actually says. It's not just a crown to be awarded by the judge. It's a crown of righteousness to be awarded by the righteous judge. Man, the weight of that has stuck with me every day since. You know what that means? This is not a participation trophy. Imagine. When I, when I think about that, all oh, the, the weight of that, the conviction of that, if this was my day, the day of my departure, can I look at my life and see the evidence of the grace of God and the power of God and the Spirit of God? Is my life 
a life of righteousness. Is it going to be a sweet aroma to the Lord? Or am I just going to stand there in the stench of my own self-righteousness? What's your life look like? Is it a faithful life that the righteous judge will say, well done? Can you imagine hearing those words? Church, that day is coming. He says it's on that day. And you, you've heard Luther's quote on that, right? There's only two days on my calendar, this day and that day. <laughs> I love that. Everything I do this day should be motivated by that day. How easy is it for us in our busyness and in our materialism and everything else in this culture, how easy is it for us to get so wrapped up in this day and never think about that day and go day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, and never even think about it. When we stand before the righteous judge on that day, we will know that everything that we did on this day mattered. And Paul says, I've given it all. I've experienced all this pain and suffering, and now I'm going to be, be killed as a martyr, and it was worth it because of that day. It's worth it. If you're, if you're here this morning and, or you're listening online and you're hearing about this, you know, this idea of a departure and... Um, how, how it's something to be welcomed and not to be feared, and, and that's not your experience, and, and, and you, don't, you don't know what's going to happen when you die, and, and you're not trusting in Jesus, and so you fear death. For the Christian, the departure is not to be feared, but Jesus speaks of a departure that is to be feared. And one of the most sobering things Jesus ever said, he said, on that day, right, many are going to come to me. And listen, church, he's not talking about the Hitlers of the world. He's talking about the religious people of the world. Many are going to come to me and they'll know all the, the, the religious language. They'll even call me by my right name, Lord, Lord. And they're going to give me their list of religious accomplishments and their religious activities. And in the departure that should be terrifying, Jesus said, I'm going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. And if you don't know Jesus, if you aren't trusting in Jesus, you're going to stand before the righteous judge and listen, the righteousness of Jesus will either save you or it will condemn you. Please, if you, if you don't know Jesus, come talk to 
one of us. Talk to, come talk to me. I, I can guarantee you anybody, any member of this church will drop everything we're doing to talk to you about Jesus. It's our favorite subject. Please don't wait. People every day wake up not knowing that the time of their departure is at hand and none of us is promised tomorrow. Let me close with this thought. This idea of living with an eternal perspective, living for that day, is such a foreign concept uh, to, to the American way of thinking, the American culture. The American culture is not set up to, to think about that day. It's, it's, it, it gets lost in someday. And if you're not careful, it starts when you're young. You've got you know, uh, maybe elementary or middle school kids here, and you're thinking, man, someday, someday I'm going to be in high school. It's going to be great. And you get into high school, and it's like, man, someday I'm going to be in college. It's going to be great. And you get into college, like, someday I'm going to get a job, make my own money, start my career. It's going to be great. You get a job, and it's like, someday I'm going to get my own place. It's going to be great. And you get your own place, it's like, someday I'm going to find my true love. It's going to be great. We're going to get married. And then someday you get married, someday we're going to have kids, it's going to be great. And then you have kids, and someday kids are going to be gone, it's going to be great. <laughs> uh, and then, then you're like, someday the kids are gone, I'm going to retire, it's going to be great. And you get to the end of your days, and the time of your departure is at hand, and you look back on your life, and you forgot to live your life. And you never once thought about that day because you were too hung up in someday. And in the pleasures and the promises and possessions of this world, you were so entangled that you didn't finish your course. All oh, that we would be a church that is focused on that day not only from this pulpit, but in each and every one of our lives, in each and every one of our neighborhoods, and in all of our workplaces, and all of our schools, that we would live this day and with an eye on that day. Before I close in prayer, I just want to say <clears throat> a couple things. I mentioned a couple people that have been on my mind this morning. Um, Nick Price turns 40 years old today, and, and that's a guy that's been through a lot. It is a struggle every day to live this day. And so, Nick, if you're listening, brother, we love you. Keep fighting the fight. Don't quit. It's worth it. And our brother Steve Myers, Steve, if you're, if you're listening, man, we love you. It was, I, I thought of you often this week because I know, I know you want to finish well. And I'm confident that you are. God bless you, brother. Monica, we love you. Would you pray for Monica this week, especially? She, she's strong, but man, she, I know she's, she has her moments. She needs us. Would you pray for her? Let's pray. God, I'm so grateful for the hope that we have in Jesus. We have no fear of death. 
because we know that the sting of death is sin, and that's been dealt with, and we're grateful for that, and, and we, we, we rest in that. God, would you use these words to encourage us and to change us as we live this day? I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.